0: Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
1: When you think of romantic love in popular culture, you probably think of one of two things. Limitless joy. I'm in love. Or unspeakable sorrow.
2: And I can't live like that. It's not how I'm built.
1: It's either a happily-ever-after fantasy or some kind of Shakespearean tragedy. Pick your favorite stereotype. Obsessed teenagers who can't leave each other's side until some youthful misdeed leads to a cry fest. But
2: then you you make me feel crazy. You make me feel like it's my fault. I was in pain.
1: (laughs) Or maybe it's the romance novel depictions of infatuated adults tangled up in passionate love triangles. I don't know. I don't read romance novels, but you know what I mean. The point is, Even if we know real relationships are much more complicated than this, we're still drawn to lots of misleading models of romantic love. I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. A new book by the philosopher Carrie Jenkins called Sad Love wants to scrap all these simplistic stories and replace them with something richer and more complicated. For her, the problem isn't that we imagine love as either blissful or tragic. It can certainly be both. The problem is that we expect that love means happiness. And if we're not happy, we think we've failed. But Jenkins says we should recognize that the pain and difficulties of love are not just unavoidable, they're actually part of what makes love worthwhile. So the way we talk about love should reflect this. There's so much to chew on in this book, and ultimately what it offers is more than a theory of love. It's really a philosophy of life. And that's what drew me to it. Jenkins thinks the myth of romantic love isn't just wrong. It's actually harmful.
2: So the myth is basically the fairy story we all know and love. We tell it to kids. Um, kids tell it to each other. The simplest version that they tell goes something like so and so and so and so sitting in a tree, K I S S I N G, first comes love then comes marriage then comes baby in a baby carriage <laughs> making it sound very simple straightforward but what they're doing they're giving each other a script for life and then you know they keep seeing it on disney fairy tales they keep getting it in rom-coms when they get a bit older and we know it's a fantasy we know that nobody's life really goes that smoothly <laughs> at least no one i've ever met but Here's why it's harmful. It doesn't stop that being a yardstick that we all end up measuring ourselves against, even though it's not realistic. We know it's not realistic. Mm. We're smart people, but it's still held up as an ideal, as a dream, as something. If only we could get that, we'd be happy ever after. And that right there is, well, where I think a lot of the problems are that happy ever after.
1: Yeah. You say that we, tend to imagine love as a, quote, failure condition. What does that mean?
2: I say that if we are sad when we're in love, it's seen as a failure because love's supposed to be about being happy ever after. It's supposed to be, if a relationship's going well, we say we're happy with the person or we're happy together. If we want to ask someone how their relationship is going, we ask, are you happy with them? happiness has just come to stand in for your love life going well. <laughs> yeah.
0: So if we're
2: sad or if we're angry maybe where does that leave us? Does that mean our relationships aren't working? Does it mean we're not in love or even worse does it mean we're unlovable? You know what if we're depressed? When I started writing this book I was really depressed and I was genuinely worried about how that left me for being capable of love and capable of being loved because I didn't think I was going to be happy ever after. At some points, I had no hope of that even. I still thought I could love someone. I still thought someone could love me. So I wanted to know why we think of happiness as the success state for love and anything else as a failure condition.
1: Right. Yeah, it's either a Greek tragedy or just unspeakable bliss. And that (laughs) seems a little too neat.
2: Well, it's all extremes, right? So we are either ecstatic, waking up every morning singing, or they don't love you back or they've left you or something and it's a complete tragedy, drama. Nothing in the middle, nothing normal, nothing boring.
1: And what you call sad love, how is that different? From the myth of romantic love?
2: So, what I try to do is talk about a kind of love that has space for the full range of human emotions. So, that includes happiness, of course, but also sadness and also anger and also just, you know, the day to day grayscale grind of getting up and going to work and not feeling particularly any kind of way about that, just doing it. Those are most people's lives day to day. Most people are not particularly happy all the time. Most people are not particularly sad all the time, although some of us have experienced that. But what I want to say is all of these emotions are valid. All of these feelings are part of being human and being alive. And I think that means they should be part of love. And I want to move away from defining love in terms of happiness, the way that that romantic myth tends to do, the happy ever after love. And I want to think about what I've called eudaimonic love or good spirited love, which has room for sadness. And if you are experiencing sadness, it doesn't mean you're not in the state of eudaimonic love. Now, sometimes you could be sad for reasons that do indicate there's a problem, and we can talk about that as well. But just being sad by itself doesn't mean there's something wrong with your love life or with your life in general. Sometimes being sad is the right response to the world. Sometimes the world is a sad place, you know?
1: When you point out that, we seem so much more willing to accept sad parental love Mm -hmm. than we are sad romantic love. Yeah, Sad parental love, as you say, is, it's not seen as a failure. That's just kind of what it is. It's just baked into the cake. Whereas romantic love, if you're experiencing sadness, it is the experience of failure. Something must have gone wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's therefore an indictment maybe of the whole relationship. And that, well, that just seems ridiculous.
2: And this temptation to externalize it and say, the other person is not making me happy, that can be really toxic too. Like It's anyone else's job to make you happy. That's not necessarily what love is for or what love is about. And one way I sometimes think about it is, I don't think that the most valuable thing in my life is me being happy. Don't get me wrong, I like Being happy, I'll take it if that's available. But there are things that mean much more to me. And I think when people have children, we tend to understand this that, yeah, you're going to have a rough time, but there's something about that that means much more to you. And there's something about that goal of raising your kids that is valuable and meaningful in a way that's not really about happiness or your happiness. And I kind of want to say that is a useful way to think about this stuff sometimes. And even in our romantic relationships, to think about what is valuable and meaningful to me or to us or to us together that we are able to do and accomplish collaboratively in this relationship and through this relationship and in our communities and with the people that we're interacting with and with our families and our friends. How does all of that work together to make our lives mean something? And that, I think, is one of the ways of understanding what it means to be eudaimonic.
1: So your antidote to romantic love is what you call eudaimonic love. Mm -hmm. Can you define that? Eudaimonia is a very fancy word Mm -hmm. (laughs) that maybe many people won't recognize. So,
2: Eudaimonia is a very old word. It's an ancient Greek word. And the root is you. E-U at the beginning, which is the same as euphoria, meaning good. (laughs) And then daimon, which is a kind of uh, spirit or a supernatural entity of some sort. So eudaimonia originally meant good-spirited or with good spirits. Mm. A lot of philosophers have used this word to kind of talk about what living a good life would be
1: like, paging aristotle.
2: Huh? Yes, exactly. They've mostly been influenced by Aristotle, who had a very specific idea about what eudaimonia would consist in. It's not particularly one that I share. But when I use the word, I'm trying to get back to that old meaning about good spirits. You don't necessarily have to think of this in terms of literal supernatural entities, but you can think about whether your love has good spirit. Whether your relationship is in good spirits, whether you're being a good spirit for your partners, vice versa, and also then whether the unit of you and your partner or partners is a good spirit in the world, in its community, and in turn, does it have support from its community? Are there good spirits all around that relationship, helping to strengthen you and support you together? And you, demonic love, being defined in these kind of ways, doesn't have much to do with whether you're happy or not. (laughs) You can be happy, you could be sad. If you're in good spirits, that means something completely different. The kind of thing that I would say it's about has a lot more to do with what makes your life meaningful to you than what makes you happy. So if you have projects and goals that you work on together with your loved one, and that you're supported in. And these are not goals that have been defined or handed to you by someone else, but they're really yours, and they really speak to your values and what's meaningful to you about being alive. That's the kind of love that's eudaimonic. And yeah, you might be depressed, but it doesn't matter. You're still doing it. You're still doing it right.
1: You know, this association between romantic love and happiness, or this idea that the measure of romantic love is fulfillment, Where does that come from? Is it (laughs) the stuff of pop music and TV and movies or or what?
2: I mean, it's all of those places. It's the cultural soup that we're swimming in. And I think a large piece of the puzzle is that we're also, at least in North American contexts and all the places that are influenced by them, we're in this kind of culture of what I've called, what others have called toxic positivity. And that is this emphasis on being positive, being happy, being grateful, having good vibes only, to the exclusion of being sad or being angry, to the point where we almost regard those emotions as shameful or an indication that you're doing something wrong. So maybe you're not doing enough yoga or eating right or... Maybe you don't do your gratitude journal often enough or whatever it is. We kind of hold each other responsible for our emotional success. And emotional success means our own individual happiness. So that's going on in the culture more generally. I think there's a whole lot wrong with that. And it seeps over into romantic relationships. And the reason I think that happens is because we've almost defined a successful romantic relationship as the core piece of a successful or a good life. That's where that script for life comes into play, right? You've got to find the one, you've got to marry them, you've got to have their babies. That's what a good life is, that has that central piece of romantic love. And if we've defined a good life as all about having that kind of relationship, and we're also going around saying happiness is what emotional success consists in, then you can see why we're thinking, well, that relationship has to be then the thing that makes me happy. This person has to be the one who makes me happy, and I have to do that for them too. We can be happy ever after together. So it's all part of a much bigger picture And I think there's two things that are really important about it. One is it puts all the emphasis on individuals to take responsibility for their own emotions, which don't get me wrong, there's some value to that (laughs) to an extent, but it's the tendency that it has to drive out of the picture anything bigger, anything systematic or systemic like Racism, sexism, poverty, ableism, colonialism, all of these are much bigger than any individual, but they can make for a lot of sadness in the world and a lot of anger in the world. And if we say that those emotions are no longer allowed, we're kind of saying, well, you have to be happy with being kicked in the face most of your life. (laughs) To certain kinds of people, that's what we're saying, right? And that's a big part of why I say this positivity is sometimes toxic. The other piece of it that's kind of huge and related to that is it has this conservative effect because anger and sadness are the kind of emotions that can lead you to try to change things. Whereas saying you've got to be happy all the time, good vibes only, only positivity in here, no negativity in my space. It's like saying, well, you've just got to suck it up the way things are. And if you can't, that's your fault. It's all on you. There's nothing... Bigger than you that needs to change here. So it's sometimes you think about romantic love, you think you're just thinking about personal stuff, but it really can be quite political as well.
1: Well, you're a professional philosopher, so you live in the world of abstractions all the time, but <laughs> this is a very personal thing. Mm-hmm. This is a very personal topic. I mean, you just mentioned you were wondering if you were depressed while you were working on this book. I mean,
2: oh, I wasn't wondering. I definitely was.
1: Well, okay.
2: 100% depressed. <laughs>
1: I think you were in good company, especially these the last few years. Oh, yeah. I guess what I'm asking is, was there some kind of like, big bang moment for the idea of this book? Was there something that you experienced in your own life, a bad breakup or a relationship gone sideways or whatever, that really crystallized this idea in your head that then blossomed into this book?
2: There wasn't. And in fact, it was sort of the fact that there wasn't that made it interesting to me. Hmm. So let me try to unpack that a little bit. There was no dramatic event. There was no trauma that made this book a reality. What there was was a long period of what I call grayscale depression, just sadness every day. Just wasn't going away.
1: And can I just ask by grayscale sadness, do you just mean sadness without an identifiable cause?
2: I just mean there was no color to it. It wasn't dramatic. It wasn't, you know, I just looked like a normal person (laughs) doing their life. Just, just sad. You know, I think there were lots of causes that were all feeding in together in terms of how things were happening on a global scale and some stuff in my own life too. You know, I had just published my first book on love and eh, getting a lot of hate mail and you know, really nasty, abusive messages. And it was, looking back, pretty predictable that a person would be depressed under those kinds of circumstances. I was doing this work that was obviously contributing to that, being out in public, talking about love, talking about my own personal experiences of love, which because I'm polyamorous, I'm in non-monogamous relationships, a lot of people attack me for that. And that kind of work, it was feeling really important to me to do it, even though I felt really sad, and even though it was one of the things contributing to making me sad. And so in that process, and there was no eureka moment, but there was a kind of a settling of these ideas with one another, realizing this work was meaningful to me in a way that had nothing to do with my own happiness, right? It wasn't about that. That was not the point of it. And if it wasn't making me happy, that didn't mean I didn't want to do it. (laughs) And the same things were trickling into my thoughts about relationships where I'm depressed. My partner is not making me happy, but that doesn't mean I don't want the relationship or that he's not supporting me. And so when I'm talking about sad love, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about there where, yeah, you're sad. It's not necessarily explosions and the end of the world sad, but you might be sad for a long time, and it might be in many ways kind of depressing, soul-destroying, devastating. But someone can love you in that condition, and they can make your life meaningful with you in that condition. And you can do the same for someone else. Yeah. I ended up calling the book Sad Love because that sad love condition was the prompt for me to understand all of this. But really, the book is not about sadness because it's not about any emotion at all. <laughs> really, the book is about understanding what love is and how you can't define it in terms of any particular emotion. It has to by its very nature, it has to have space for all of them.
1: Do you think that love should come with no promises and maybe even no hope of enduring happiness? I mean, maybe what I'm really asking is, do we still need the happily ever fantasies? Or as Nietzsche would put it, are some illusions truly indispensable? I mean, what does it cost (laughs) us to hold on to them?
2: Uh, Do we still need that fantasy? I don't think we need it. I think it's a dangerous fantasy. It kind of lures people towards chasing something, the pursuit of which actually tends to make us kind of miserable tends to make most of us feel like we're failures. Even those of us who want something that looks like the fairy tale, if we don't get it and whenever anything starts to go wrong with it, we tend to be made miserable. And people who are looking for lives or loves that don't look anything like the fairy tale are just kind of excluded from the get-go and made to feel strange or weird for wanting what they want, and sometimes worse than strange and weird, just flat out wrong and, and bad. Um, There can be a lot of shame around that if you are not interested in having a romantic relationship with anyone, or if you want relationships that don't look like a nuclear family. I think really what it comes down to is there can't be one story for everybody.
1: Yeah. But there's also different kinds of love. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I I wonder if you think romantic love is the most important kind of love. I, I think that question itself is flawed. Mm-hmm. But I'm asking intentionally, anyway, because romantic love is often held up as the most meaningful, most important kind of love. But as a culture, we don't really teach, encourage, or reinforce other kinds of love. I mean, it almost begs an interesting philosophical question, right? Like, why wouldn't a life dominated by familial love or the love of friendship and community? Not be preferable. I mean, you, you could still have sex without romantic love, right? So you don't have to. We don't have to lose that. But I, I could still make the case, and I would make the case for romantic love. But I don't know. I'm just I'm throwing that out there to see what you think.
2: Yeah, there have always been people for whom a romantic relationship wasn't what they wanted. You know, people used to join monasteries and dedicate their lives to other things than what we think of as a normative family structure. But it's not that romantic love has anything inherently wrong with it. It's not that loving a partner in the ways that we call romantic is a bad kind of love. I'm not against romantic love in that sense. But I am worried about the idea that it's the best or the most important or the most special kind of love. I think that's just wrong, (laughs) frankly. I think it's just a mistake. And it's a dangerous mistake for lots of reasons. It downgrades the significance of other loving relationships, which for a lot of people are the most important relationships in their lives. But it also puts romantic love on a kind of pedestal that makes it fragile and sets expectations for it that nobody can ever really live up to. They just build romantic love up into this be-all and end-all of a good life and the only thing that's going to make you happy.
1: So the point here, I think, is that the question we should ask ourselves isn't whether our partner makes us happy. You can find happiness in a bottle of red wine. I mean, certainly I can. <laughs> the question is, is my partner truly a co-collaborator in the story of my life? Does he or she or they help me co-create my life? Is that Right?
2: Co create my life and our life and the story of, you know, our communities and our, it extends outwards, right? It's not just about me. It's not even just about me and another person. It's about everyone that's impacted by us. Part of this is meant to be talking back to that individualistic idea that everything boils down to one person and how that person feels on the inside, and then maybe one other person and how that other person feels on the inside. Eudaimonic love's much bigger than that in the sense that it takes account of, if you are co-collaborators, what are you co-collaborating on? Are you making the world better or worse together? <laughs> yeah. If you are really into one another, but the thing you like to do is rob old ladies on the street together, Not sure that's a eudaimonic love. (laughs) You know what I'm saying?
1: Is it possible to envision a kind of love that's compatible with real freedom? I'll ask Carrie Jenkins after a quick break.
0: Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash It's a very existentialist book
2: mm-hmm.
1: because it's, and bear with me here, because it's trying to map out, I think, a vision of love that's truly compatible with freedom. And I think that's also what makes it very hard for people to practice in real life. We all want to love someone. We all want someone to love us. But the truth is that we often want someone to love us on our terms. And that's problematic if I'm reading you right. And I want to quote you on this. You write, The other human being involved in such a relationship is presumably an autonomous agent with their own free will, not a prize you get for being a good person. I take that to mean that we tend to see our partners almost as instruments. We love someone because of how they make us feel, because the role they play in our life mm-hmm. but that kind of love can often be very self-serving. It doesn't really appreciate the freedom of the other person because they only exist as a character in our story. It's very self-serving. Am I reading you correctly, or is that me projecting my own thoughts?
2: No, you are. And you know, I'd go so far as to question whether that can even count as love mm. because it's almost like you're not really loving that person. You're just loving something that happens inside of you when you're around that person.
1: (laughs) Mm, Yeah.
2: If you're not working in a collaborative spirit with them on things that are meaningful to them and to both of you, then yeah, I'm not really sure that I would want to say that's love at all. And certainly, I wouldn't want to say it's good-spirited love or eudaimonic love. There's also another risk that's close to that one which is where we tend to see a partner as a kind of social status symbol. Like, look at me, I've been able to attract this person, right? This really high value, attractive in whatever way you see that partner, (laughs) maybe this really rich person or this really famous person or this really good looking person and that makes me feel good about myself now because it boosts my ego and it makes people think more highly of me because I have this trophy partner. So I must be great because they are with me. When we're thinking about it in that way, that again can be incredibly toxic, not only because we're not seeing the other person and we're just thinking about how being with them is a benefit to us. We're also getting there into the kind of territory where we're seeing people as only a valuable in terms of how, quote, successful they've been on the dating or marriage market. And that makes for a lot of social problems. When you get people who feel rejected and like they've done poorly in that market and that they are losers or they're failures because they can't attract a suitably high status partner that can actually not only devastate individuals but it can make people turn violent and it can lead to in the worst case scenarios you know mass murder this is a real thing that happens as a result of saying your status is dependent on who you can attract as a romantic partner
1: i've i'll be personal here to maybe kind of ground us a little bit. I'm married. I've been with my wife for eleven years now. You know, we're in a pretty challenging stage of life. We have a three-year-old at the house and that's (laughs) that's its own kind of tornado. But like everyone, both of us are changing and evolving, hopefully (laughs) productively as we get older, often in unexpected ways i mean Mm -hmm. anyone who's a parent knows that it changes you and the question we're always asking is how do we allow each other to grow and change without imposing our own expectations or our own desires on each other and it's really hard there are inevitable clashes and my biggest worry is that we might allow ourselves to believe the lie that love consists in the loss of our own agency, our own freedom. And that's not really true, or it only appears true if you're attached to an unhealthy vision of love. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if you're going to love someone in a way that respects their autonomy, Mm -hmm. that means you're not in control of them. And they don't exist just for you (laughs) to make you feel secure or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that means you have to let go. Yes. And that's scary. That's hard (laughs) and scary. Yeah. Hell yeah. It's scary.
2: Yeah. It's scary. And I get it. I do. The thing about that is if we don't face that fact about needing to respect a partner's own autonomy doesn't make it not a fact. They actually still are a free agent. They still might grow and change in ways that. Pull them maybe away from us. We actually can't stop that from happening. Whatever we try to do, we can't stop it from happening. But if we don't look it in the face, we can kind of kid ourselves that it's not true. So then, what's going to happen if we do that? I mean, maybe we'll get lucky and nothing bad will happen. Another possibility, though, is we're going to be blindsided when that day comes because. We've been ignoring the fact that our partner is their own person. We might even have brought it on by doing that. <laughs> if we've been treating the person as if they're just there for us.
1: Well, it's more than that, right? We don't we don't want to see it. I, I'm, yeah, I'm curious, you know, how you've collided with this in in your own life, right? But like, <laughs> sometimes you know it, even if you won't admit it, that because of what you're saying about how people change, and if you're loving someone in a way that's truly about this kind of co-creative act, Mm -hmm. who they are might change and you may change and be different from the person you were before. And that means what you need, what they need also changes. Right. And that might mean you're no longer right for one another. And it's just a lot easier to bury your head in the sand than engage with that. Yeah. Because once you engage with it, you have to accept the consequences. And that's scary.
2: And I mean, this is just the same existentialist dilemma that we face in being alive right <laughs> at some point we've got to say actually i am responsible for what i choose to do under whatever circumstances i find myself in and sometimes i might do really wrong and i might have done really wrong things and bad things but pretending that's not true doesn't make it go away. But this is why the existentialists kind of talk about nausea, Sartre calls it nausea, that feeling of just dread in the face of, oh my God, I'm a free agent. What we're having here is that same thing happening again, looking at someone else and saying, oh my, they're also a free agent. That spirals on itself because not only am I now open-ended in terms of what I might do and might become, so is the person in front of me. How on earth can we see ourselves even tomorrow, or never mind 10 years or forever into the future? And so these are real, genuine aspects of being a human being and having love for another human being. And I don't think that we can make them go away. If we bury our head in the sand, we're just refusing to look at the problem or the thing that scares us.
1: So if romantic love is this, Rich dynamic thing that involves the entire spectrum of emotion. And it's full of all these contradictory needs and desires. How do we know when it's just not working? How do we know when it's time to move on?
2: That's a really hard question. It's not necessarily going to look the same for any two different people. There's a lot to be said about thinking, not necessarily just in terms of when to move on but to think about how things can change. So an individual person grows and changes over time and relationships, if they are healthy, will grow and change over time as well. Part of what worries me about the romantic myth is that we're supposed to be just the same way we are now forever. That never happens, everybody changes. And if your relationship doesn't change, then it's going to die. (laughs) Anything alive is going to grow and is going to change. So what I'm sometimes tempted to think about is how a relationship to another person needs to change rather than what needs to end or be removed. And I'm not talking here about, you know, if you're in an abusive relationship or things have gotten bad enough that you're being harmed, that situation needs to end, don't get me wrong. But if you're just realizing you've grown apart from someone in certain kinds of ways and you're no longer really engaged in the same lives anymore, maybe your lives overlap a little bit, but not as much as they used to. Once we've stepped away from thinking there's only one story for how a loving relationship can look, we're at liberty to say, okay, well, how could our loving relationship look if it only interweaves a little bit and we only overlap in this much of our lives instead of that much like we used to? And well, what does that look like? And then you can have a conversation about, does it look like being friends? Does it look like being lovers who only see one another somewhat occasionally? Does it look like becoming non-monogamous and having other partners? There's lots of ways that relationships can change that we just kind of Trained out of considering as options. The only story we know is, oh, if your romantic relationship ends, it's devastating. They become an ex. It's very painful. You should never speak to them again. You know, all of this kind of stuff. And really, that's just the worst case scenario. Every other option is almost certainly better than that. Again, assuming it's not someone who's been hurting you or vice versa. Being able to reframe and reshape the relationship and the love that you have for one another. Is nearly always the best way to think about that. I just wish we were more aware of those possibilities for ways that love can change and grow over time. Because actually, I think the happy ever after mythology and its associated conception that romantic love never changes is the exact thing that leads to all kinds of heartbreak and unnecessary separations and devastating breakups when really we could have just transitioned relationships in another direction and they could have been perfectly healthy.
1: But it can be hard to tell the difference between just simply struggling to figure things out or when, as you put it, you come to this realization that whatever goals you might have in your life, whatever projects you're working on are better served by working with someone else, Mm -hmm. by loving someone else. And it's not clear to me how you Really know. I mean, you even say in the book that, like, the vision of sad love you're laying out is quote, almost grotesque, in that it's, it's like kind of sadomasochistic in the sense that, like, we need this thing that will inevitably make us miserable, but it's still worth pursuing anyway.
2: I mean, the problem you're raising about how to know what to do, that really is the existentialist problem, right? Because the truth is we don't face the existentialist situation alone. We also face it as couples or as a family or as a nation state in some cases, right? Groups of humans have the same sets of responsibilities and choices in front of them and potential to have an influence on the world. That applies to the case where it's a group of two, of two married people, let's say. And so all of those same kind of choices about how and when and what to do, uh, those same things that we face every day as individuals, we face them as couples as well, or in whatever kind of unit we may belong to. And so there's no way to answer that question of how to know when it's time to, let's say, to end a marriage. Any more than there's any way to say, like, how to know when it's time to quit your job or run away to the circus or (laughs) those kinds of life changing decisions, you're ultimately responsible for them in a way that is kind of terrifying. And there's just no way to make it less so. I wish there was some comfort in that. But
1: (laughs) did thinking all of this through force you to reevaluate any of your own? Relationships, and maybe even relationships in the past, maybe see them differently as a result of writing this book, and I ask in part because, you know, the thing about existentialism is that it really is practically minded. It's about living and deciding in real life.
2: Mm-hmm. I think I'd say they they move in parallel with one another. So the way I'm living is gonna impact the way I'm writing. And the way I'm writing, because it's gonna make me think things through, is then gonna impact the way I'm living. So mm. yeah, this kind of philosophical work is very personal, is very practical. It's not as abstract as, you know, the things I used to do when I sat around all day thinking about arithmetic and logic. <laughs> but some of this was already in my mind. So I've never made any secret about the fact that I'm quite uncomfortable about the idea of marriage, the way that it exists at the moment, and yet I'm married. I mean, I'm not sure about the institution of marriage. Certainly, it's history and the baggage that's attached to it around ownership, especially ownership of women, and the ways that that still in some cases becomes part of the ceremony even today. It's not all ancient history. We still give brides away, one man to another man. In wedding ceremonies. These things are really troubling to me. And the more I think about what's important to me in my life and how that involves collaboration with other people, I think in a sense it's kind of gotten me deeper and deeper into this realization that my way of loving looks nothing like the romantic mythology at all. (laughs) And, you know, that has reflected in my personal life. I have four. Romantic partners right now. And I've ended up thinking of the ways that I work with each of them on, in some cases, radically different parts of my life's work and, you know, different goals and stuff like that. But each of those is a collaboration that I value and has meaning to me in the kinds of ways that in the romantic mythology, only one person is supposed to. It's really just that they reinforce one another, my thinking and my living.
1: I think at some point in the book, you even openly worry that even though you are involved in, and I hate this phrase, but you know, non-traditional mm-hmm. you know, relationships or whatever, that you may still be replicating some of these norms, even in those relationships. And that's something you, you wrestle with.
2: All the time, because I'm never free of a gender, let's say. I have a gender, and the way that gender norms and gender roles infect romantic relationships and the expectations around them, however much I may feel like I've done critical work thinking about that, it's still really powerful, that social influence of the expectation that women do the cleaning and men make more money. right? (laughs) It's really hard not to feel like when my kitchen is a mess, I'm more of a failure in (laughs) the domestic situation because the kitchen is a mess, because that was kind of my job and I'm now failing in my role in this romantic dynamic. It's really hard not to feel that even though I don't believe it, right? Even though I entirely reject all of those gendered assumptions, but that's the kind of thing I mean. And it's similarly really hard to get away from the idea that if I really love someone, I'm not supposed to love anyone else that way. And I just, I do.
1: Coming up after one last short break, does loving multiple people at the same time, allow you to love better? Support for the gray area comes from green light. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area.
0: Vacations can be tricky. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: This may sound contradictory, but I don't think it is. Do you feel like you're able to love better because you love multiple people at the same time. Because you are involved in multiple relationships, different parts of yourself are able to shine or you're able to be different versions of yourself with different people. And so it's more full and more dynamic and therefore maybe more fulfilling. I'm just speculating, I don't know, but do you ever feel like that? That actually being involved in multiple relationships allows you to be a better lover and a better partner.
2: Yes and no. (laughs) I'll explain that. And I would say as well, I'll preface this with, this is really personal to me, and I'm not at all saying it would apply to anyone else. When I talk to other people who are in non-monogamous relationships, there's often some resonance with some of this, but I know other people who are pretty monogamous people, and this is not how they work. So I'm just talking about me now. (laughs) Yeah. I think that I can live better, never mind loving better for a second. I live better in multiple relationships. And I think partly that's, yeah, because it enables me to work and exercise more of the parts of myself that might otherwise maybe not even ever come into existence if I was not with the people that I'm with. I think partly it's also too that I'm able to be loved and supported in ways that don't mean the burden of doing that all falls on one person. <laughs> I can be a handful. <laughs> when I'm depressed, it's not the easiest thing in the world, you know, to look after a depressed person. And more hands to the tiller with that project it means it's not all on one partner, you know, all of the time.
1: Yeah, that's what I was getting at, I think. I think it's asking a lot of anyone to be everything their partner needs all the time, forever. Yeah, I don't know if anyone is truly capable of that. And if we expect that, I think we're setting ourselves up for disappointment.
2: That's right. And where we place that disappointment in, in ourselves or on them, that can vary. But one way or the other, yeah, it's going to lead to some bad situations. But the second half of my answer was there's also nothing is free, right? Everything has a cost. And so The ways that having multiple relationships can be a cost is that I have more responsibilities to care for different people. I'm then stretching my resources to cover everybody that I love. (laughs) To me, the surprising thing is This is actually true of most people because most people don't just have a romantic partner. They also have some family they care about, maybe some kids they care about, maybe some parents they look after and and friends that they're there for as well. But when it's another romantic partner, we tend to regard that as an unacceptable way of dividing our attention and our time. And to me, that difference just isn't a real difference. Yes, in a sense, when I am loving more than one person, I have to be there sometimes for the other one, you know, cause they need me, but I might have needed to be there for my mother or my best friend as well. And nobody would have batted an eyelid at that. So, I mean, I think the really important thing is the love in these dynamics and not whether it is placed under the banner of romantic or friendly or familial or whatever. I think what matters is how we care for one another, how we show up for each other, how we help each other, how we build meaning together with one another. Whether we call it a relationship or not, and whether we're having sex, you know, that doesn't matter so much. It matters what we're really doing, being alive, right? (laughs) That's the part that's important. But we've got very hung up on the idea that what's really important is how much sex we're having, or <laughs> whether this person is our one and only. And I mean, I just I don't see it that way. I guess.
1: Yeah, and that's one of the things I most appreciate about the argument you make in the book that you emphasize love as a verb, not a noun. It's we have this idea of love as a passive thing that it's about feeling something rather than doing something. But that's wrong. Love is not something you have. It's something. You do, or it's not something that happens to you.
2: It's not something you just fall in like a hole in the ground, right? Yeah. (laughs) You don't just accidentally find yourself in a loving relationship one day. You can have some feelings.
1: That's right. but Then
2: what do you do with that?
1: So much of the romantic myths about love are very self-indulgent. I mean, there's a section of the book that gets into how relationships that encourage social cooperation beyond the nuclear family, a kind of problem for capitalism. And that's probably way too much to really explore here. But I bring it up because it it is related to this question of freedom and and love. And whether we know it or not, the romantic conception of love, you say this in the book, it pushes us to treat our partners as co-consumers, really as consumers of each other, Mm -hmm. because the other person exists to satisfy our desires. Right. And I think this is what makes your critique of romantic love so much deeper than it might appear. It's really a critique of our whole political and economic paradigm and how that has shaped our inner lives to the point that it has touched and colored our understanding of love.
2: It is. Thanks for noticing that. That really is what it is. You know, I I don't think it's at all an accident that this is how we think about romantic love after hundreds of years of of capitalist influence we've come to understand what a good life is as being about how good we are as consumers and so good partnership means consuming together what are you buying together buying a house buying some you know groceries every week and as you say ultimately even consuming one another which is sort of the worst and most depressing downside of it when we thought about love differently. And important thing here is that how we think about love really does change over time, depending on how the world is going and how social relations are construed and how politics is going. But we used to think about relationships a lot more as a coming together of two people in a productive capacity, not a consumption capacity. These are ideas I've got from my friend who's an economist, Marina Adshade. And she talks about people used to come together as a productive unit. Lots of things were not ideal about this, but there'd be a man out working, maybe in the fields, creating food. And there'd be a woman at home producing the next generation of workers to carry on doing this productive unit. Yeah. That more than the question of whether they were making each other happy used to be what that relationship of marriage or marriage like relationships used to be about. As I say, not suggesting we go back to that, but the shift into thinking of a romantic relationship as being all about what you consume together or what you can consume of each other, that's a problem. And There is something about this idea of it being what we do together, what we create together, what we produce together, that was lost in that transition that I'm trying to get back.
1: You reference Viktor Frankl, Quite a bit in the book, the famous Austrian psychiatrist who survived the Nazi concentration camps. And we both agree that he's right when he says that the kind of goal that makes life meaningful has to be something that points beyond ourselves. But for that exact reason, it means we can't do this alone. Mm -hmm. So, whatever form of love we aim at, it can't just be about individual happiness. And part of figuring out how to love and really how to live is knowing ourselves, what we value, what we want, what really matters. But if you accept this very existentialist insight, and I do, I think you do as well, Mm -hmm. if you accept that our identities aren't fixed, that we're making it up as we go, then you also have to accept that there's no one-size-fit-all model of love. And what you need from people and what they need from you will constantly change. And if the person you love or the people you love don't recognize that, then you have to really ask yourself if that's the kind of love you want. Or if it's even love at all.
2: If it's even love at all, right? If they're loving something that they had in mind that you might be, but it's not you, then they're loving something that really is inside of them all along and not the self, the being that you are, which is a living thing that grows and changes.
1: Or if they love a version of yourself that you've grown past.
2: Exactly right. They love a past time slice of you
1: and they're holding you to that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think that happens a lot.
2: You're right that Viktor Frankl is a huge influence here. He's actually the reason for the subtitle of this book. So it's Sad Love, Romance, and the Search for Meaning. And Frankl's book was called Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah, But that's why I, I chose that phrase for my subtitle was to kind of respect what Frankl is saying about how you have to place meaningfulness and, and what you actually value at the center, not happiness, in order to survive difficult situations
1: the book is sad love romance and the search for meaning check it out people carrie jenkins thanks so much for coming in i really enjoyed it
2: thank you this was amazing
1: eric janikas is our producer patrick boyd and christian ayala engineered this episode our theme music was composed by Alex Overington, and A.M. Hall is the boss. I loved talking with Carrie last year, and I'm really glad we got a chance to share this conversation with you again. If you like the episode, as always, share it with your friends, your romantic partner, or depending on where you're at, maybe your therapist? Drop us a line, as always, and tell us what you think at the gray area at box.com. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. Search Wix Studio today to explore the full range of features.